very much. All right. Let's take our Bibles this evening. Let's go to Galatians, back into the book of Galatians this evening, as we've been looking at this for some time now. And we'll be in chapter 5 and continue our study, uh, really on this phrase, been looking at for quite a while, but on this phrase of walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But we've been looking at this phrase for some time, and uh, just to jog your memory, all right, by way of remembrance, keep in mind from this phrase, we've so far have seen these things. We've seen that this phrase is a command. Listen, for us to walk in the Spirit is not a suggestion. It's not something we can take or leave. No, it's really something we should obey. It's a command from God, command from the Scripture to walk in the Spirit. But then we notice this, though we have a great desire, many no doubt do, uh, desire to walk in the Spirit, we find that there is a conflict. A conflict with the sinful nature we were born with and the conflict between that and the Holy Spirit we were sealed by. And every born-again believer has this conflict. You are not alone, all right? You're not alone in this battle. Every one of us face it. Even the Apostle Paul said he faced this. You can read for that for yourself in Romans chapter number 7. There is a conflict from, from keeping us, trying to keep us from walking in the Spirit. But then we saw this. This would have been for a while. We are seeing the cluster of fruit or the crop of walking in the Spirit. And the cluster we've been looking at is mainly this one, the fruit of the Spirit. And this is where we've been for several Wednesdays. This is actually our ninth Wednesday looking at the fruit of, of the Spirit. And so let's pick it right back up and look at the last one, last element, last trait of the fruit of the Spirit here in our Bible study tonight. In Galatians chapter 5, and look at verse 22 with me, all right? Verse 22 and 23, the Bible says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for another opportunity to open the Word of God, to study it. And I pray in this moment that you would open our hearts to it, open our minds to it. As the psalmist says, open thou mine eyes. May behold wondrous things from thy law. Lord, there's many things that can be distracting, many things that uh, um, may weigh heavy on us tonight, on our minds, on our, uh, on our hearts, burdens that we've carried in with us. May we simply focus in on you tonight. In this moment, focus in on the word and focus in on this truth of walking in the spirit to see that from our lives and through our lives can flow the fruit of the spirit. Now, the one we're going to look at this evening of temperance. God, help us to be spirit-filled and fruitful believers. We love you. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, as we begin to dive back into this, all right, look at the last trait. I want to remind you of the first eight traits quickly, okay, that we've seen thus far. Now, keep in mind, we've started this uh, looking at the traits, and the first one was love. And again, be reminded once more that the uh, fruit of love, or the element of love, or the fruit of the Spirit, uh, all the other elements of the fruit are an outgrowth of this main part, our fruit of love, all right? Because everything flows from this deep, rich, fertile ground of God's love. 
And the love we saw is not a love that the world tries to portray, but it's rather a true love that Jesus Christ has portrayed. It's a holy love. It's a sacrificial love. It's a godly love. It's a one-way love, expecting nothing in return. And this is God's love for you and for me and any born-again child of God that walks in the Spirit will have this kind of love flowing from their life. And then we saw joy. Remember, this is not exact same level as happiness, not entirely exclusive, but not the same level. Because happiness and joy have different foundations. Happiness foundation is based off of happening, circumstances that surround us. But joy's foundation is different. Why? Because its foundation is Jesus. So keep this in mind when you think of happiness and joy. Happiness foundation, circumstances. Joy's foundation, Christ. All right? It's different. It's different. So we can always have joy in, in our life uh, because Christ never changes, okay? You may be going through some deep, dark valleys, but I want to tell you something. You can still find and have joy in Christ, okay? Keep that in mind. All right, then we saw peace. I really want to preach on joy again, but we've got to move forward, okay? Then we saw peace. And peace is something, again, that everybody craves in their life. And it seems many are missing, but they're missing it because they're looking for it in all the wrong places. They try to find peace in what the world has to offer, but Jesus made it plain where we find our peace. In John 16, these things, Jesus speaking, have I spoken unto you that in me ye might have peace in the world. You shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Understand, peace is a wonderful aspect we all can have as we walk in the Spirit. Then we saw long-suffering. Long-suffering, be reminded, means to just simply do that, to suffer long. It means to endure. It means it means be uh, someone who exhibits constancy, uh, to be steadfast, to persevere. And anyone walking, again, in the Spirit will render this characteristic of long-suffering. We saw gentleness, number five. And what does that mean for someone to exhibit gentleness? Well, some get the idea that being gentle means you're being soft, you're a pushover or wimpy, but that's not the case at all. You see, in its simplest form, gentleness is this. It's showing kindness when it's in your power not to. Just as King David showed the kindness of God unto Mephibosheth when it was in his power to have Mephibosheth and the rest of Saul's family completely eliminated, but he showed the kindness of God unto him. That's gentleness. Then we saw this, goodness. What is goodness? Goodness is uprightness of heart and life. It is that which is characteristically good in itself, and because of that, it will be beneficial in its effect. So goodness is an action from you to others. And the example we looked at was Barnabas. Because the Bible says about Barnabas, he was a good man. And you can see that goodness in his life as he was kind and good to Paul, who was known as Saul, but he was kind and good to him to bring him to the rest of the disciples. He was good to the Christians at Antioch when he went down to check on them, preached to them, and to exhort them. He was a good man. But that goodness is not of his own self and own being. Rather, it flows again as someone who's full of the Holy Spirit, someone who walks in the Spirit. Goodness will flow. And then we not only do we see the goodness from the life of Barnabas, but then we saw number seven, faith. And again, faith is this. The Bible says, Hebrews 11 and verse number 1, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Simply put, faith is this, the act or attitude of believing trust. 
Believing trust, that's what it is. So every single day, in thousands of different ways, you and I operate on faith. I was even talking to somebody about this this past week, and I said, we're going around this curve by faith. What do you mean? He said, here's what I mean. You don't know if somebody's coming around the other side of this curve. And besides, between us and that car that's passing us is about that much of a yellow line. You're driving by faith, I promise you, all right? But we operate in faith day by day. But what makes the difference? What makes the difference from an everyday simple faith to a saving faith? Here's what makes the difference. Our everyday ordinary faith becomes saving, securing, and sanctifying faith when it is placed in Lord Jesus Christ. So the object of our faith is what changes everything. So Jesus Christ should be the very object of our faith. Because when it's misplaced, that is faith. When it's misplaced, it can lead to disaster. But when it's properly placed in Jesus, all things are possible to him that believeth. The object of your faith makes all the difference in the world. I want to encourage you again tell you, you and I can trust Jesus. Okay? We can trust the Lord. We can trust the Bible, have faith in it, believe it, and trust Him. Then last time we saw this, we saw meekness. Now what is meekness? Well, some folks think when it comes to meekness, they believe it's weakness. Some think that it means to be feeble or fragile or timid. Some think it means that someone who is meek is unable to defend themselves or take care of themselves, easily taken advantage of, but this is not meekness. We found out very quickly as we looked at two lives, looked at the life of Moses, we found out he was not a weak man whatsoever, but a very strong man. And then we looked at Jesus. No doubt as we looked at Christ and Moses, no one would dare say those two individuals, especially, especially Lord Jesus, was weak. No one would dare say they were weak. So what is it? What does meekness mean? A simple definition. And as we move forward, it means this, strength under control. Strength under control, that's what, meekness, that's what meekness is. So meekness would tie in with gentleness. It would tie in with kindness. And as we move forward to this last trait, it kind of ties in with this one as well. All right? And this last trait of the fruit of the Spirit we're going to con consider is this one. Number nine, temperance. All right? Temperance. And this is where we'll spend the rest of our time together as we study this, uh, this element tonight. All right? But what is temperance? What is temperance? Now, some individuals in our modern day and even our modern day vernacular, modern day speech, they would associate this word temperance with moderation or even abstinence. But in the context, in the day and age in which we live, in the context of consuming alcohol. As I was doing a little study on this, I found out there was even a movement in the late 1800s that was called the Temperance Movement, and later that would uh, move or really lead to the Prohibition era of the early 19, uh, 1900s. But many would closely associate the word temperance with the consumption of alcohol. And I've got to stop here just for a moment, and I've got to throw this little plug and rant in, Okay. Just in case you ever wonder where your pastor stands when it comes to the consuming of alcohol, I will be happy to tell you, I am 100% against it. 100%. I am completely against the consumption of alcohol. I just want to make that completely clear. I don't think there's any room in the life of a believer. I've never met someone who said, you know, I got saved because I met a Christian at the bar. Never, I've never heard that. But I've actually heard the opposite. I've heard the opposite. 
I've heard people say, well, I saw that guy at the bar one time, and he says he goes to church. What a hypocrite. It turned him away from the faith and from truth. So I've never seen alcohol bring anybody to Jesus, but I have seen it repel them from the Lord. And besides, if you never start drinking, guess what? You never have to quit. So I just want you to know I'm completely against it because I've seen it wreck many lives. I've seen it destroy too many marriages, and I've seen it kill too many people. Stay away from it. I'd be happy you did. In rant, let's move forward, all right? But so many people want to equate this word temperance with alcohol, consuming alcohol in moderation. And I don't think that's what the scripture is getting at here whatsoever, okay? And besides, if we end or, or go to that route and stay just there, it limits the word and its usage. So I don't think that's what it is. Now, there are others who would say when it comes to temperance, it means this. Temperance means self-control. And if that's your definition, then guess what? You would be, well, you'd be right in a broad sense of, of the word. In a broad sense, it does mean self-control. Let me ask you a question. All right, everybody look up here. What is this? A pen. That's right. What is this? A pen. That's right. Did you know these are not the same pens, even though they're pens? They have different applications and different uh, writing. One is a fine tip pen that I can write in my Bible with and won't leak through. The other one's a ballpoint pen. It's really broad. And, I mean, they're both right, but one has a better de defined usage. Yes, both pens. But it could be a little bit more defined. Now, this one's purple. This one's black, the ink at least. So what I'm trying to get at is this, trying to use a silly illustration. To say that if you think temperance means it's self-control, you're absolutely right. But you won't go wrong with that. But it's got to be a little bit more to the meaning behind the word than just self-control. It's got to be a little bit more. So with this word temperance, as we consider in a context, especially with the fruit of the Spirit, in a context of a Spirit-filled life, it has to be a little bit more than just self-control. Control. Because understand something, when you look at Scripture and even look at our world today, even a person who does not know Jesus as their Savior can exhibit, guess what? Self-control. Do you know that? As someone who is unregenerate, who is not living for Christ, someone who does not have the indwelling Holy Spirit can have self-control. Even Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 9, 25. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate, same word, temperate in all things. Now they, meaning those that are striving for the mastery, he's talking about those outside of the faith, by the way, in the context of 1 Corinthians 9. And now they do, do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. Now again, in the context of the, the history at the moment that he's writing, when he's saying this, he is talking about athletes of the day. That's what he has in mind at least. When he says those that strive for the mastery. But these that would strive for the mastery, strive for first place, these athletes, those athletes would train and exercise, prepare their bodies, prepare their minds, prepare everything about them for the apex of the athlete games at that time, the Greek games. So these athletes were temperate. 
to make sure they were in tip-top shape to be able to perform at their best. They showed great self-control in everything they did with their bodies. No doubt they made their bodies get into shape. And uh, no doubt they made sure they ate the right things. No, no doubt they made sure everything was right about them physically before they ever competed in these games. And they exhibited, no doubt to do so, great self-control. They had a lot of willpower, no doubt about it. So they were temperate. So does this mean that this word temperate or temperance just mean self-control? Does it just mean to have strong willpower? I think it's got to go beyond that. It's got to go a little bit beyond that, no doubt. So the question is this. How then do we get a better understanding of what this word really is trying to teach us as it pertains as part of the fruit of the Spirit? Well, keep in mind, the fruit of the Spirit, as we're looking at it, nine traits here, is really pointing to the character of who? That's right, of the Lord, of God. That's what all this is pointing to. That's all this is pointing to. So to get a better understanding of what temperance is, guess what we've got to look at? Easy Sunday school answer starts with a J, ends with Jesus. Jesus, that's right. Okay, we got to look at the Lord once, once again. So I want to look at some portions of Scripture. I'm going to read them to you. You can mark them in the margin of your Bible if you like uh, there in Galatians 5. But I'm going to read these portions of Scripture to you and try to point out the great temperance of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right? Matthew chapter 26 and verse 47 through 56. And yes, we're going to look from the time when he was arrested to the time he, was, he laid down his life for the sin of the world, okay? And just see how temperate he really was. But I'll read these, and uh, it, the Bible says this, Matthew 26, verse 47 through 56. And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves. From the chief priests and elders of the people, now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss... That same is he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? It's amazing to me as I read this to notice Jesus' self-control in this moment. To even allow Judas to even get close to him, let alone to kiss him. And then to look at Judas eyeball to eyeball and say, Friend, knowing full well that Judas was full of the devil and knowing full well the intention behind that betraying kiss and that salutation of, or greeting rather, of hail, master. Knowing all the things of who Judas is inside and out to show temperance in that moment is amazing. And we'll see why here shortly. But then the Bible goes on to say, Then came they, laid hands on Jesus, and took him. And behold, one of them, which were Jesus, stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck off, or struck his servant of the high priest, and smote off his ear. Now we know this was Peter, and he was showing no temperance, okay? Zero self-control in this moment. You ain't taking Jesus high! You know, anyway, that was the redneckery from Galilee coming out in him. All right, but anyway. But the Bible says this, Then said Jesus unto him, Put up again thy sword into its place. Put that away, Peter. And all they that took, take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thankest thou, listen to this, thankest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, 
He shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels. But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled? That thus it must be. It's amazing to me as I look at this and think of this and read this portion of scripture, the self-control of Jesus to not call 12 legions of angels. Listen, at this moment, a legion during the Roman army was upwards of 6,000 in one legion. So do the math. 12 times... Twelve times six thousand is what? It is a bunch. That's right. It's seventy-two thousand. All right. So let's do this. Let's say over, possibly over seventy thousand angels. He could have called because he has all power in heaven and in earth. And that's why he could have done. He could at this very moment call down these angels to take care of all these people. He didn't need Peter's sword. He didn't need Peter's help. He could have done it himself, but he allowed these Romans to arrest him along with this betrayer to kiss him and take him off to the court. But why would he do that? Why would Jesus show so much temperance in this moment? Well, we'll see in just a second. But the Bible goes on to say, in that same hour said Jesus to the multitudes, Are you come out against me with thieves, as a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you laid no hold on me. But all this was done, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled, and all the disciples forsook him and fled. And then as they took him down to, to have a, um, a trial, which was a mock trial, the Bible says in Matthew 26, 60 through 63, Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. But at the last, at the last came two false witnesses and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witnesses say to thee? But Jesus held his peace. Let me ask you, would you have held your peace at this moment? If people, were, if people were trying to acquire false statements from false witnesses, who would then be lying about you in order to falsely incriminate you? Would you dare hold your peace? If it was me, I'm flipping over tables and I'm punching somebody, right? Because you're all lying. <laughs> but Jesus in this moment, and that, that's a joke. I, I, don't, I don't think I'd do that. I don't know what I'd do. Okay, anyway. But Jesus in this moment was showing great temperance self-control in this moment but but why did he show such great temperance we'll see in a moment then later they will lead him on to be scourged uh, in john chapter number 19 and verse number one and then as pilate falsely sentenced him to this cruel act it was in that moment he willingly took it showed great self-control to take the horrendous beating from the cat of nine tails then the mockings of the people in John 19, verse 2 through 15. And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple, uh, a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him with their hands. Pilate therefore went forth again, saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. And then the hate-filled cries of the people began to chant just a few moments later. The same people they sat with in the temple and ministered to and preached to would say this. When the chief priests, therefore, and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith to them, Take ye and crucify him, for I find no fault 
in him. The Jews answered, we have, a, we have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the son of God. And then in his conversation, the coward himself, Pilate, would cowardly condemn the innocent Lord Jesus. The Bible says, when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid and went again to the judgment hall and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? And Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If thou... If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. It sounds like they're on a playground, does it not? If you don't do this, you ain't my friend. Anyway, whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard the saying, he brought forth Jesus and sat down in the judgment seat in the place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And there was a preparation of the Passover in about the sixth hour. And he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Listen, in all this, Jesus was showing great temperance. But as you kind of see that in, all your, in your mind and you read it in black and white in your Bible, understanding what he's doing there, and we know why he's doing it, it's for, it's for, it's for our redemption, we, we know that. But go with me, go a little further with me. And let's go to Mount Calvary, where Jesus was led, carrying a cross, led to Mount Calvary, where he willingly laid down his body upon a cross, where he willingly submitted himself to the nails they drove into his hands and his feet, where he willingly submitted himself to horrendous pain and torture and submitted himself to more mockings of the people and even the thieves that were dying the same death. But just before he gave up the ghost, Jesus graciously said these words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they, what they do. But in every bit of this, every bit of what Jesus did, every bit of what he had endured, listen, he did so with complete self-control. Complete temperance but why why could would Jesus be temperate in all things why here's the answer he was submitted that's the key that's the key to true temperance and true uh, self-control he submitted himself to the will of the father do you remember what took place just before Judas came and with the band of soldiers to arrest Jesus you know what took place they were praying in the garden remember what he said in the garden take my cup but he said nevertheless not my will but thine be done he submitted himself to the will of the father in Luke twenty two forty two. but he also submitted himself to this he submitted himself to the scriptures Again, as he said in Matthew 26, 56, but all this was done. As he's talking to, as he's talking to Peter in that moment, when Peter took out the sword to cut off the ear of Malchus, right? He said, listen, put that away because all this is being done. Why? That the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. He was submitting himself 
to the Word of God, to the Scriptures, that it might be fulfilled. So here's why. Here I'm going to it all down right here to a conclusion. Here's why and how Jesus had great temperance in his, in his humanity. Listen, we know, and I'm not taking anything away from his deity, I promise, okay? We know he's God. 100% God, 100% man at the same time. We know that. But in his humanity, we know this is why and how he had great temperance and showed it because he was submissive to the Father and led of the Holy Spirit. Remember as he announced his ministry, immediately after his baptism, he was led of the Spirit into the wilderness. Remember? He was submissive to the Father and led of the Spirit. So as we think of temperance today, in the context of the fruit of the Spirit, it has to go beyond just having control over our own selves. It has to go beyond the, just having a lot of willpower. It has to go beyond that. It has to go beyond just having everything under the control of our own human will. And it has to go here. It has to go to this. It has to go to being under the control of God. Under the control of the Spirit of God. Be filled with the Spirit. That's the idea in Ephesians when he talks about that. To be filled with the Spirit. To be under the control of. To be led of. That, that's the idea of being full and walking in the Spirit. It's be led and controlled by the Lord and by His Word. That's what true temperance really is. It's a result as we lay our wills down for His. To be brought under the control of the Lord Himself. Now, I'm not talking about mystical, weird way. I'm just talking about obedience. As we talk about Sunday, really. Obedience to the Word of God and to the will of the Lord for our lives. So it goes beyond just doing our best, trying our best to have self-control. Except when I see that ice cream, it's on sale. I have no self-control. It's got to go beyond that. It's when I submit ourselves to God. I think that's what Paul's getting at. Especially as we read the rest of this chapter. Look what he says. Verse 24. And they that are Christ, Galatians 5, 24... And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. And if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Being submissive to God, being submissive to His will, submissive to His Word. Listen, you'll yield. You'll, you'll see this fruit of the Spirit come out of your life. Because again, it's not us. It's the Lord in us, the hope of glory. The Lord working through us. It's the Lord. It's every good thing that comes out of our life is it's God. Every bit of it. And as I look at these traits, the, the love, uh, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, uh, full of faith, meekness, and temperance. Listen, as I look at that fruit, it sounds like a really good life. It. it really does. It sounds like a great life. But it only comes when your life is yielded to God and walking, walking in the Spirit. So my question to you as we close tonight is, are you? Are you yielded to God, walking in the Spirit? If you are, these traits, this fruit will show up. It'll show up. Others can see it, but you'll know. 
And by the way, you're not doing it for others. It's all for the glory of God. Never for ourselves. So are you walking? 